0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To Psalm 50, that last section is always so sobering. You have um, people that are designated as wicked who take God's statutes and covenants on their lips. So they're religious. They're the religious wicked. And then they turn around and, as Daniel just said, hate instruction, turn your back on his word. They actually delight when they see other people doing wrong. It's like they live vicariously through other people's wickedness. You associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil, harness your tongue for deceit, maligning your brother. Slandering your mother's son. But the most amazing thing about that passage is in 21, you've done these things and I kept silent. That is, I didn't immediately drop the hammer on you. You pursue a path of wickedness and I didn't stop you. I didn't crush you. And the conclusion of the wicked is they think, oh, God understands. He must be like me. Perhaps the most wicked thing in that whole list is thinking that God is like us. Worse than slander, worse than associating with adulterers, worse than the Hypocrisy, the idea that God is just like us, it's idolatry. It's the grossest form of idolatry of self to think that God must be like us. Of course, God's opinion of those who think that he's just like them is, uh, is harsh. I'm going to lay the case out in front of you. And you who forget me, that is, you forget who I really am, what I really am like. I'm going to tear you apart. And there's no one to rescue. I'm going to be like um, a lion going through one of those little villages in Africa that go in and drag somebody out from their tent. And there's nobody that can do a thing about it. I'm going to tear you to pieces. It... um, Sobers us to make sure that we are not hypocrites. Taking God's word in our mouth and then turning around and using our mouth for evil. So sobering, sobering text. Well, we'll move from one sobering text to another. Revelation 21 So, you might think that since this is our fourth week in these first eight verses, that it's going to take us a while to get through 21 and 22. You might be right, but 21, 1 through 8 is foundational to the rest. In other words, all of the components of 21, 1 through 8 are then expanded in twenty one nine through twenty two, five or six, I think, and so we'll we'll kind of move a little faster, I think, um, unless of course Dawn starts waxing eloquent about Jasper and Sapphire and Chalcedony and Emerald and and uh, correcting me on all of my incorrect. Um, analyses of the stones in the New Jerusalem. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Well we've had this this wonderful passage really um, starting in verse 21. And we get down to verse seven and this is the conclusion to this opening section of this uh, final unit of twenty one, twenty two, and John says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be as God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This uh, this text of uh, Revelation twenty one seven and eight actually has uh, quite a few similarities to the last two sermons that we've done on the warning passages, because in a sense, you have all those components. You have you have a promise, okay, but you also have a condition. The one who overcomes, right? So what do you have to do to inherit? Well, there's a condition, overcome. But then there's a promise, that's the inheritance. But then there's a threat. Okay? Those that actually live a life that's contrary to the life of an overcomer are actually not allowed into that inheritance. And so you actually have all of those things working in these last two verses. And... Uh, really, we can't, uh, we can't emphasize enough the fact that we, we desperately should recover the function of the warnings, the threats, and the conditions, as well as the promises. Because if, if what we've been saying the last two Sundays is true, then those, those warnings, threats, and conditions, and the promises and the assurances, they work together in tandem So the Puritans used to talk about the the idea of of falling off uh, of the narrow path into one ditch or the other. And the the, the two ditches were on the one side, despair, and on the other side, presumption. And so for them, in fact, they saw the way that the warnings worked as well, and they saw that the promises keep, are designed to keep the soul from despair. But the threats are designed to keep them from presumption. And so they work, again, in tandem to do what? To keep us persevering, to keep us enduring, to keep us running the race. And so um, when we hear these, we hear that there's an inheritance, you keep running. When you hear that only the overcomers inherit that, you keep running. When you hear that there's a whole list of people that don't inherit, you want to make sure you keep running and you're not in that crowd, right? So John says, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And of course this word overcome is uh, is not new in the book of Revelation. It's used uh, in both its noun form, nike, and its verb form, nikao, and it means to to conquer or to be the victor, the conqueror. And of course, the, the minute that you hear that word, right, the one who overcomes, or let's say, let's use a different word to make the connection better, the one who conquers. The one who conquers immediately if you are if if, you're, if your biblical antenna are up right and you are tuned in to the to the waves of of scripture, you realize that the minute you hear the one who conquers it takes you not to you, it takes you to Christ, and so Jesus himself tells us. Um, In this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome, conquered the world, right? The the vision in Revelation 5, Revelation 5, 5, the lamb has overcome. The lamb is the victor. The lamb has conquered. And and by the way, that, that very image, you would think, that if you're going to use such, um, in a sense, a robust, vigorous word like conquer, uh, victory, or victor, that it would be associated with a lion. And it's not, it's associated first with the lamb. Before it's associated with the Lion of the tribe of Judah, it's associated with the lamb who's standing as if slain. And what that reminds us of is the fact that this conquering, this victory is actually one that is not removed from suffering. And so Jesus has won the past victory. He's actually through his blood, through his sacrifice, he overcame. He's overcome death. He's overcome Satan. He's overcome the grave. But there's also going to be a future victory that we saw back in chapter 17. There's going to be this massive war, 17:14. Uh, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. And so just as sure as as um, overcoming is associated with Jesus' past victory, which secured our redemption, our overcoming is also clearly associated with Jesus' future victory. In other words, you're not an overcomer in and of yourself. You're you're not a victor in and of yourself. You're not a conqueror in and of yourself. Your victory is always rooted in Christ's atoning victory, and it's always rooted in his coming victory, which he will win by himself without our help. It's not like he's going to say, hey, guys, we need help. Flank flank the enemy from the right or we're going to be doomed. Doesn't work that way. He wins the victory. So overcoming or conquering is not some sort of triumphalistic notion, right? I mean, it would be easy to think that way. Right? By the way, there's a lot of triumphalism in Christianity today, isn't there? By triumphalism, uh, if, if you want to put it in, um, in terms that Daniel can understand, um, there, there's a lot of chest pounding today. <gasps> Got it? <laughs> yeah, and there's this, um, now, we've been doing a whole thing for for a year on biblical manhood. We believe wholly in biblical manhood, but there's a difference between biblical manhood and sort of a, uh, a machismo um, kind of Christianity, right? And so that kind of Christianity sort of has a triumphalistic spirit, yeah. Um, we're going to take over, we're going to rule, we're going to reign. And I think that we should be totally optimistic, but our optimism is always rooted in Jesus' past and future victory. All right. So, in a sense, the idea of, 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 of us overcoming or conquering ends up being sort of an ironic notion. Because who are the overcomers? They're the ones who suffer, they're the ones who are persecuted and in fact sometimes they're the ones who die the overcomers in other words in this present age don't look like overcomers and in fact we've already seen it we've seen it in revelation chapter 12 we've seen it in revelation chapter 13 and there is a sense in which in which from from the world's perspective n- The church is always the underdog, always. And the church is always weak. And the church, the church doesn't go around flexing its muscles. The church actually is a church that exists in weakness. It's a church that that suffers, but it is in that weakness and suffering that Christ's strength is actually made known in us and through us, and it is in that that we end up conquering. Now, of course, to the world, it doesn't look like conquering. To the world, it looks like we're a bunch of losers. Think back to was it 1956, and and you've got Jim Elliot and and Robert uh, uh, Roger Udarian and Nate Saint and. Um, um, One more, Pete Fleming, and those guys are going to take the gospel to the Alka Indians. They actually have this great strategy. They end up on a sandbar the night before singing, we rest on thee, right? And the next day they go, and they're all killed, all killed, speared to death. For their bodies to be found by the army. You know what that looked like? Defeat. You know what it looked like? Tragedy. You know the lens of Revelation, you know what it would say? They overcame, (laughs) they conquered, just like their Savior. Why? Because they were faithful. Even unto death, and so the idea here, the one overcoming um, present participle. So the the overcoming one. Actually, what that demonstrates is it demonstrates that the the characteristic of a genuine believer is an is is an overcoming one. This is characteristic of who we are, and so just. Taking um, our cues from the way this word is used, and we won't we won't go into great detail here, but Christians overcome the devil. Okay. You do know that, right? We conquer the devil. Revelation chapter twelve, verses ten and eleven. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. John, in 1 John, by the way, this word overcome is used a lot in John's epistles and the book of Revelation. John could say in 1 John 2, um, I'm writing to you, verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you've known him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I've written to you children because you know the Father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. To overcome the evil one is to be delivered from his kingdom, to be uh, delivered from the blindness that he, that he uh, enforces upon unbelievers, and to overcome him means we reject his lies by believing the truth, resisting temptation by believing the truth, and actually overcoming him through the Lord Jesus Christ. We also overcome antichrists. 1 John chapter 4, back up to verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, that is the spirit of Antichrist, the Antichrist, of which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you've overcome them. Overcome who? The Antichrist, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so the Christian not only overcomes the devil, he also overcomes those who who would um, propagate um, moral and doctrinal seduction. In other words, the true Christian actually overcomes the false teaching of the false teachers. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 We, of course, know this one, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So three times in the verse, the same word is used, overcome is the verb, victory is the noun, overcome is the verb. And so we've overcome the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And so in a, in, a, in a real sense, the moment that, that we believe in the one who is the victor, the minute that we believe in the one who has conquered, we are equipped in him by our faith to overcome the world. In other words, you don't have to be, you don't have to be seduced by the world. Fa- by faith, you overcome the world does that mean? It means you have the ability by faith to discern truth, live for truth, and to defeat the lies of the world. So Christians are overcomers. Think about Revelation 2 and 3. Each of the seven letters to the seven churches ends with this, to the one who overcomes. I will give so the, each of the letters ends with a promise to the overcomer that there's going to be some kind of eschatological blessing for them. And so as we look at this and we've gone through it quickly, but I think that you can demonstrate pretty clearly that to be an overcomer is simply to live a life of endurance It's to live a life of, as it were, conquering, overcoming sin and compromise. In a sense, that's what the seven letters are exhorting the church to do, to overcome, that is to resist compromise and to resist sin. And so we overcome the seductions of the world, the world and the flesh and the devil, how? By persevering in the truth. And so overcoming is not some sort of like special Forces Christianity. It's not not like the Rangers or the Green Berets of Christianity. The overcomers are simply Christians because overcoming is simply a metaphor for the life of faith. Who is the one who overcomes? The world. The one who has faith, 1 John 5, 5. And so being, this is, this is important for us. Being born again means you're born again as one who overwhelmingly conquers through him who loved us. Who's the overcoming one? The one who believes in Jesus the one who believes that Jesus has overcome, the one that believes that Jesus has won the victory, the one actually who participates in Jesus' victory. And now we, we, we participate in those saving benefits which actually come to us through the one who has overcome. And so, overcomers are simply Christians who persevere to the end and they inherit the promises, And the promises are only for those who overcome. And the overcomers are the only ones who inherit the promises. We can say this in lots of different ways. The overcomers are Christians who persevere. Christians who persevere are overcomers. Christians must persevere. True Christians will persevere. True Christians are overcomers. An overcomer is a Christian. A Christian is an overcomer, right? Now, J.C. Ryle's quote, (laughs) let's face it, some demonstrate that better than others, (laughs) right? Some engage in the fight better than others. Some are more diligent than others. Um, and, And, of course, Ryle connects it, of course, to to prayer, but there are these glorious promises that are made to the overcomers. And so here's, here's the point of 21.7, the overcomers inherit all these things. John Piper says, the point of the promises is to engage our affections for the eternal glory of God. The point of the warnings is to disengage our affections From the perishing glory of the world. The point of the promises is to make our mouths water at the prospect of infinite happiness in God, and the point of the warnings is to make our hearts tremble at the prospect of falling under the wrath of God. So the overcomers inherit these things. Inherit. Inheritance. It's a grand Old Testament word, isn't it? So in the Old Testament, what did you inherit? So in the Old Testament, what did you inherit? Land. The land was your inheritance. In the Old Testament, does the land point to something bigger? Absolutely. So, is inheritance used in the New Testament? Is inherit used in the New Testament? Yes. So, now, keep these things together in your mind so the overcomers, that is, real Christians who endure to the end, right, even if they're hobbling across the finish line, those are the ones who inherit these things. And so when John says they inherit these things, you have to ask yourself, what is he talking about? And so William Mounts, I think this is, this is very helpful, he says, so the idea of inherit, he says, use theologically, the New Testament speaks of the disciple inheriting salvation, Hebrews 1.14, which is equated with entering or inheriting the kingdom of God and eternal life. Okay? So understand that um, there's a generation of Bible teachers that would say, well, there's a difference between entering and inheriting. You might not be an overcomer, but you'll still enter, but you won't inherit. And I want to say that is an absolute phony, ridiculous distinction. To inherit is to enter, to enter is to inherit. And so Mounts goes on, he says, the inheritance of the Christian is salvation, which is given not by law, but by faith. This inheritance is the reward of the believer, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, the Holy Spirit himself is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, all right? So, you are, uh, are you an heir right now? Absolutely. Have you received the fullness of your inheritance right now? Let's hope not, <laughs> all right? Like, if this is the fullness of your inheritance that doesn't speak very well of our Father's wealth and glory, right? So we're heirs and we have an inheritance, but that inheritance is primarily future. It's being reserved for us, okay? In other words, the idea of inheritance is is future or eschatological, but here's the beauty of it, is that there's an inheritance that we're looking forward to, but God has given us a down payment or a guarantee of that inheritance, and that is the Holy Spirit Himself. Okay. So, this is why, by the way, this, the Spirit's called the first fruits. Okay. So, first fruits is a guarantee, not only is this what you offer up to God, but it's also, uh, firstfruits is a guarantee of, of a greater harvest which is to come. And so the Spirit is given to us as a down payment of our inheritance so that we do what? We have. We have the assurance that we're heirs of a kingdom. Now, in, in the book of Revelation, and I, I, I jotted down a bunch of, bunch of Scripture dealing with inheritance, and you can look them up later if you want, but there's also, uh, you won't inherit. There's, you will inherit, and then there's, you won't inherit. Right? So, those who practice the deeds of the flesh just as I've warned you and warn you again, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? So so you have the great promise of inheritance, and then you have the great threat of you're not going to inherit, okay? And so, as we think about Revelation, all the promises, so this is from Greg Beale. All the promises made to the overcomers in the letter section, chapters 2 and 3, are fulfilled in the closing section, which describes the new Jerusalem and the eternal reward of the believer. And so he goes through and he says, points out all the stuff that you're going to inherit, right? So you want to know what it is. Or are you so, you're so pious that you're just going to just be just happy that I'm, I'm there. I want to know what God has in store for us. Right? Is it, what's the value of knowing what God has in store for us? Okay? okay, there's there's an assurance. This is what God has for you, not simply that you're going to get to this ethereal, abstract place called heaven. No, there is an inheritance, and that inheritance actually looks like something. That inheritance is something. Okay, your watch is going off. Yes, it is. I'm I'm looking at it right now. How can you not hear it? <laughs> One of the things you'll inherit is that your hearing will be restored. Praise the Lord for that. All right. So what Beal does is he goes through he goes through the, the seven letters and then he corresponds those those inheritances with other texts in Revelation. And so let me just give you some of these. What what do you as an overcomer inherit? First of all, you inherit the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You inherit what Adam was cut off from. You inherit the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You inherit inclusion in the new temple part of that is because you share in Christ's priesthood but the other part of that is because you are actually the 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 old timers would talk about um uh, perichoresis. that is that is mutual indwelling and so to actually be a part of the temple you actually God is in you and you are in God in a way that you don't know right now. In other words there's going to be there's going to be a communion and a and a communication with God that is comp- Completely incomprehensible right now. So you get the tree of life. You are included in the new temple. You participate in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, which, by the way, means that you are part of the bride of Christ. Here's part of your inheritance, You have God's name written on your person. Your name is written in the book of life. You have bright garments as a reward, a bright stone and a luminary, whether it's a star or a lamp. You have an inheritance that's consummated by reigning with Christ and being completely excluded from the second death. That's an inheritance. And it is absolutely glorious. You could, you could say it shorthand. It's the inheritance of the new creation. But the new creation is made out of redeemed, glorified stuff. And it's going to be absolutely stunning. Reserved for you. That's what Peter says. It's reserved for you. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, which is to be revealed. And so the glory that is to come is our inheritance. And the thing that makes the glory to come so glorious is that we will see and know and love and be loved by God in Christ by the Spirit without any Mediation. How does God mediate himself to us right now? Well, by his spirit, right? But you only have a down payment. If, if God wasn't mediated, right? so immediate means without mediation or without mediator. If 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 you had God immediately right now, that's all you would think about, okay? God would be in your thoughts every millisecond, overwhelmed with his glory, taken up in praise, right? So we have the Spirit right now, and he mediates the presence of God to us, but let's Let's face it, there is a lot uh, in our life that eclipses his presence for us, right? Not the least of which is our own sin. We praise God here. We commune with God here. But it's in part. I mean, mean, think, think think about your own devotions this morning. Did you like fall on the ground or did you stay seated in your chair? Were you, were, you so, were you so overwhelmed by Exodus 11 through 15 or wherever you were reading that you couldn't even contain yourself? No. We have little tastes right now. Just little tiny foretastes. Our inheritance is that you have the fullness of God in Christ. Swallowed up, as it were, in his love and his glory and his peace and his presence, never to be tempted to turn from him ever again. Sometimes we think about the sinlessness of the future state in terms of our own glorification, the perfection of our humanity, our affections, our heart, and, and so forth. And, and that's true. But I want to say that there's something even, even more powerful then glorified humanity that keeps us from sinning. So it's impossible for us to sin in the eternal state, right? We we won't have it in a sense. We won't have the capacity in us anymore. We will be passe, no, we will be, well, we won't be able to sin. I was going to try to tell you in Latin, but it's escaping me right now. It just sounds better, frankly, in Latin. But anyway, <laughs> sounds more holy at least. But here's, here's the thing. So you'll have a new constituted humanity. You won't be able to sin anymore. You won't even want to be able to sin. But the thing about it is that you will be so overwhelmed by the, by the immediate presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that you will be utterly and totally employed and preoccupied for all of eternity. And it never will get old. And it will only increase. The perfection of the age to come is a perfection that for us will increase. And you say, How does perfection increase? I've already explained it to you. A few years ago, talking about Jonathan Edwards. His vision of his, his, his writing on heaven, right? The balloon. Remember the balloon? No? Okay, so if you blow up a balloon, let's just say this big. Is that balloon full? Yeah, yeah. It's not like you got room in there to do anything, right? It's full. Can it expand? Yeah. So can its fullness become fuller. Yes. And what we will be experiencing in eternity because of being in the immediate presence of God with unmediated glory will be the eternal increase of joy. So you can think of it this way. In this life, the, the more that we seek after God, the more we hunger for God, the more th- we walk with God, the more that we obey God, what are we doing? We're actually, we're actually increasing our capacity in the age to come. So, and here's the, here's the beautiful thing, and this is totally Jonathan Edwards. So, some are going to be full, but they're going to be like a balloon this big. You'll be full, but you might only be a balloon this big. Others will be full, but they will be like a huge balloon, all right? Massive. And the beauty of heaven is this the massive balloon, who obviously has much more capacity than the little balloon, won't look at the little balloon and say, hmm, look at you. You're little. Why? No pride. And the little balloon won't look at the big balloon and say, I'm jealous. Why? No jealousy. No sin. Right? And so you end up having this eternal increase of joy in the, in the immediate presence of God experiencing his immediate glory. And we will be utterly consumed in wonder and love and praise for all of eternity. I think that was worthy of more than just one little squeaky amen. (laughs) All right, now it's not where John stops. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God. What's, What's the next line? No, it's that's not the next line. He'll be my son. The typical covenant promise, which we've already seen, I'll be as God, they'll be my people. I'll dwell with them, right? This is different. This actually is hearkening back to another covenant promise. Not just the generic covenant promise that's in all of the covenants. This one is a particular one. This is why This is why cross-references in your Bible don't just take up space that you could be writing in, okay? They actually show you something. So look at your Bible, and if you have uh, a good version, no, if you have (laughs) the last part of verse 7 is designated as B. Do you have a little superscripted B in verse 7? I'm going to show you something that will help you read your Bible better tomorrow. So, do you see B? No, 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 not that B. A little superscripted B. Yes. Okay. It is right in front of the eye. It's a little tiny superscripted B. No, not okay. No, not that B. That's a verb of being. I'm talking about just the letter B. Okay. <clears throat> Does who sees the B, the little tiny superscripted B before the I? Okay. It's not in your Bible, all right? Okay. You see it? Now Go over to the cross-reference in verse 7, and go over to superscripted B. You see it? In the cross-reference. Okay. Oh, oh, you got one of those Bibles that doesn't have any room for cross-references. How sad. Okay. Get a Bible with cross-references. So, the last part of that verse is B. Okay. Cross reference B Second Samuel seven fourteen. Who sees that? Okay, I'm showing you something that's gonna be valuable to you. Okay. Who sees the next text? Psalm eighty-nine twenty-six. Okay. All right. Now, why are those cross references? important at the second part of verse 21, 7. Because they're telling you that the covenant promise that John is referring to is the covenant promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14, and also expanded on in Psalm 89. In other words, okay, I can tell. Some of you have that donut look. You're glazed over. Okay. Oh, for Pete's sakes. (laughs) Okay, I'll show you later, Don. So, what you go like, okay, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Is that that promise, that covenant promise, is made with David and David's sons so it finds its fulfillment in who in Jesus Christ David's greater son the davidic covenant is made ultimately not just with David, but with David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Now, what's the significance then of seven? The one who overcomes will inherit these things and I'll be his God and he'll be my son. What's the significance? Why not just go back to the generic language of um, uh, he who in, uh, overcomes will inherit these things. I'll be his God. He'll be my people. Why actually now make an allusion to the Davidic promise? Because in a very real sense, the only inheritance you have is through David's greater son, and the promises made to David's greater son are now given. To those who overcome, okay. <laughs> so when he says, my son, that's us. Yes, <laughs> we overcome, we, we inherit, we inherit because we're in the greater David. We think of it this way you inherit what God promised to his own son. Uh, some of you are still looking for B, I know. Oh, good. <laughs> Eureka. All right. (laughs) (laughs) You're looking for what? Uh, Throw your phone away. Get a real Bible. Okay. Now, we got to do this next part quickly, and this, this is fine because this is the bummer part. But for the cowardly the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and moral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let me just ask you a real simple question. How many groups of people do you have here in these two verses at the end? Only two. You've got overcomers and those that are cast into the lake of fire. That's it. No middle ground. No purgatory overcomers, and those calves in the lake of fire. Now, notice those who don't inherit. First of all, the cowardly. Does the ESV say cowardly? Okay. So, cowardly. um, Boy, I, I hate to say this, but the word just is the Greek word for cowardly. timid. The word itself means timid and lacking confidence. In Revelation, I take the cowardly to be a reference to those who have turned back, capitulated to compromise, and who in turn do not overcome. Okay. Second, the unbelieving. Now, again, I'm going to say this is more than just um, just unbelievers. Okay. I mean, that's true enough, right? Unbelievers. In a sense, Everybody in the lake of fire ends up being in in the same category, unbeliever. Here, this is a little different. You have the cowardly and then you have the unbelieving. And so those with an empty faith or those with an abandoned faith or those with a faithless faith, in other words, those who did not overcome. And then you move to the abominable. This word is to detest something because it's utterly offensive or loathsome to abhor or to detest something. And of course, the abominable in Revelation are going to be who? They're going to be those that give in to the worship of the beast, now, remember, when we say the worship of the beast, we're not talking about just the last seven years of human history. We're talking about, the, the, in a sense, the way that the beast manifests himself from generation to generation. The one who is loyal to the beast, the one who worships the beast, is actually the one who is not worshiping the lamb. You can't worship the lamb and the beast at the same time. Mutually exclusive. And so the abominable are those who are the, um, even though the word idolater is going to be used here a little later, these are the idolatrous, worshipers, murderers, next next description, murderers. Now, in, in the context of Revelation, uh, these could be the agents of the beast or of the harlot who persecuted the saints, but I would also remind you very clearly of 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15: whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life in him. Next, immoral persons, the sexually immoral. Now, of course, in the context of Revelation, it's those who are doing what? Who are actually consorting with the harlot. But the idea of, of immorality is, by the way, it's just pervasive in the New Testament, is it not? Marriage is held in honor among all, but adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. You know, you hear these disturbing um, statistics Um, among younger Christians, fornication is becoming just as common as it is among non-Christians. And sometimes what happens is they'll do things to um, uh, avoid Having sex while still having sex. Okay. Right here, sexually immoral. Next, sorcerers, pharmacos, one skilled in arcane uses of herbs or drugs, one who does extraordinary things through occult means, sorcerer or magician. And so, the sorcerer um, actually combines two ideas, um, the cultic or occultic use of pharmaceuticals. I know that's completely irrelevant for us today. Must have been only a first century thing. Idolaters, image worship, idol worship. And then the last one. All liars. You know what we do? We're we're so we're so good at justifying stuff, right? So we, we, we create categories, don't we? Someone that's like a real liar, what we call them. Something like bald-faced liar, right? What do we call a person that just tells little ones? Or what do we call those little ones? Just white lies. I don't even know what a white lie is. I don't think the Bible makes a distinction. Do you? It's just all liars. All liars. Now, here's, here's something that's really quite interesting. John is fond of the term liar, 1 John 2.4, let me just read these to you. They're in your notes, I think. The one who says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Thus says the apostle of love. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So you have, you have different kinds of liars here. You got the liar that says I know God but then doesn't live for God. Then you got the liar that actually denies Jesus Christ, so either the false teacher. And then you've got a different another liar in in John four and verse twenty. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Ouch. You you do understand (laughs) all liars have their part in the lake of fire. Someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Where does that person have their eternal portion? Lake of fire. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 5.10. The one who believes in the Son of God has his testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And so, liars in the Bible are not just people that go around telling falsehood. That's true. It's one of the seven things that God hates. Right? Okay? Proverbs 6, 19. But liar also is... Compromised behavior that denies our confession, false doctrine, hypocrisy. And John says, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Sobering. Those who overcome inherit these things. I'll be their God. They'll be my son. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. By the way, that list is not comprehensive, but it gives you... It's enough to put the fear of God in you. Their part... You do understand the play on words. They will inherit these things, but their part, their portion, you might say, their inheritance is the lake of fire. It's the second death. It's the second death. And so that is the eternal state of punishment that's already been mentioned to us in revelation 14 revelation 19 and revelation 20 and this these two concluding verses to this introductory section are marvelous and sobering two lessons i know we're over time one First lesson, these two verses issue a death blow to easy believism and the idea of being a carnal Christian. You tell me in verses 7 and 8 where there is any room, for a person that simply makes a decision, has no change in their life, and keeps living the way that they've always lived. They're described in verse 8, not verse 7. You know, there's this terrible idea that a person can believe in Jesus and live exactly as an unbeliever and still go to heaven when they die. And that is a lie. That is a false gospel. The second lesson for us is this. Simple. Keep running the race. Be an overcomer. Maybe you didn't feel very victorious today. My hunch is that the most victorious of God's overcomers are ones that don't typically feel very victorious There's a humility. There's a sense of our own failure. You understand that the closer, the more you mature and the closer you move to the light, the more aware we are of our own failures. The more aware we are of our own weaknesses, the more aware we are of our own shortcomings, the more aware we are of our own sins. And so that's why, some of the greatest believers throughout church history have been people who have continued to bemoan the fact that they not, are not what they ought to be. But they kept running. And so overcome. You, you, have been, you have been equipped with everything necessary to conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so you fight on, and you fight on, and you fight on. Is it possible to get weary in the battle? Of course it is. Is it possible to get tired of the conditions of the battle? Of course it is. Ariel and I just watched the 10-part HBO series, The Pacific, World War II, some of the fiercest fighting in all of the war was over those little islands in the Pacific. Been way better to go home. But you had to fight. And if you didn't fight, you died. And that's us. You fight. Maybe the end of your fight is that you die. But you fight. And you fight regardless of the conditions. Because you have a commander-in-chief who has equipped you for the battle of a war that's already been won. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these two verses, how sobering they are. Father, we, we confess our own sins to you. Lord, we are, we are not as courageous as we ought to be. We are not as faithful as we ought to be. And we pray that you would forgive us and that you would encourage us to live and to breathe and to fight in the victory of our Lord Jesus with the absolute confidence that in the end, we win, and we win big, and we have a glorious inheritance awaiting us. Father, may we think of quitting the race, not being an overcomer. May that be so repulsive and repugnant to our souls that we cry out to you that you hold us, you strengthen us, and you help us fight another day. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.